From KZSU News, this is the Monday Roundup for April 26th. Thanks for being with us. I'm Ken Durr. Coming up, another excerpt from Carla Leininger's interview with Juan Salting's Jonathan Javier. And the end of the pandemic might not mean the end of SARS-CoV-2. In fact, many scientists think COVID is here to stay, even with vaccines. More details today on the Epidemic Podcast. But first, here are your Monday headlines. Stanford School of Medicine has clarified that a study disputing the effectiveness of masks was not written by a current affiliate of the university. The faculty senate is considering changes to the honor code, like allowing proctored exams, to address a spike in violations this year. Portions of Bayshore Road will be closed later this week as part of the Highway 101 Ped and Bike Bridge project. San Mateo police have arrested a suspect in connection with a fatal stabbing of a 21-year-old man on Saturday night. Marine experts concluded that an endangered fin whale that washed ashore in San Francisco over the weekend died after being hit by a ship. California will resume administration of Johnson & Johnson vaccines after a 12-day halt, and East Bay Mud will consider declaring Stage 1 drought. A warmer trend as dry weather returns, with temperatures reaching the 60s along the coast, 70s around the bay, and into the 80s inland by midweek. And now here's Carla Leininger with Juan Salting's Jonathan Javier. Uh, My next question is, what makes uh, Juan Salting unique in the services that you provide? Yeah, I think that Juan Salting has been able to really solve something, which is basically giving the tools necessary for students and job seekers trying to land jobs. Like every single day, it's insane. We have someone accept an offer in their dream company. And the thing is they post about it on LinkedIn. I think we've created a community of folks and individuals that not only exemplify the underdog turn winner story, but are willing to share it and also help others get there. And we have different services, of course, with resume revisions, LinkedIn strategies, job opportunities, all those different things. But a lot of people have that. I think what Juan Sulting has that's different is that community. We have millions of people who we've been able to impact. We have like, I think, 30 million views on content per month now. And we've been able to tackle it on all different platforms. So TikTok, we have 385K. My Instagram, I have 95K now. LinkedIn, 93K followers. Like we try to tackle every different outlet because we believe that the strategies that we teach are something that aren't taught in schools, right? Because the system will teach us, Carla, go apply to Facebook on their careers website. While consulting will teach you, how do you reach out to the hiring manager who's specifically recruiting for the role, build rapport, and you can get a recommendation from them. So I think it's very important to bridge that gap and teach students and job seekers how to get there. Because if we're able to do that, that's the underdog turn winner right there. What are you seeking as employment trends in 2021? A lot of people utilizing LinkedIn. It's been crazy. You have seen probably a huge influx of people building their digital brands online. And so what I've been seeing is two different things that are very interesting. Number one, people reaching out to hiring managers and kind of bypassing the simple ATS scan of your resume. Um, I think that has been an integral part or something that people have been you know, bypassing through our different strategies. So that's one part. Another thing as well is showing companies their skills and experiences already on LinkedIn. So for example, I've seen two folks who have done this 
Number one, someone who did this with Spotify posted their Spotify resume on LinkedIn and tagged Spotify and it went viral. It was literally a Spotify based with wait, a bunch of wait, playlists. What, what, Spotify resume? Wait. Yeah. What? Yeah. Right? So check this out. So you know how Spotify is a playlist. Yeah. So someone made a resume based off that playlist. Yeah. And so they wanted to get into a specific field and they posted on LinkedIn and it went viral. But wait, right? music, they were attaching music as it relates to their experience or yeah. No. So they were actually, they had a resume and they put the resume in Spotify format. So you know how Spotify has their playlist? Oh, just the format. That is awesome. Right. And then there's another person who did it for Netflix. But the thing is, what's crazy about this, Carla, is when you post that online and it goes viral, the company is then in the, it's the hands of the company of being like, I should offer this folk in interview. Uh, you know what I mean? So it's kind of going into the power of the job seekers hands rather than the power of the employer's hands. I'm seeing a huge shift in that because a lot of people are taking action and actually getting the confidence to reach out to these folks instead of being like, Oh my gosh, I'm worried about what I would say. And if they would respond, I think that mindset piece, like I tell you all the time, Carla, that mindset piece is extremely important with the job search. And that's what I've been seeing a lot on LinkedIn and other platforms. So do you think resumes will be a thing of the past? Honestly, I, resumes, let's call it traditional resumes. Yeah, I think that traditional resumes, you know, in maybe in the next five years might be obsolete because I think what's happening is people are building a brand online where people, I call this reactive recruiting for one consulting, where folks will reach out to you instead of you having to reach out to folks. Uh, I think that's more integral and it takes less stress in your mental capacity. Um, so I think that a lot of the things you can see on your resume is already on LinkedIn, right? So I think that we're changing into a virtual world where we are going to see a lot of people being recruited through various platforms other than their resume. The question I always get, Carla, is how do I beat ATS? Why beat it when you can avoid it? That's why I say use LinkedIn, and I think that's the future. Yeah, although I would have to challenge you on LinkedIn because for someone like me, and let me say, uh, as a multi-potentialite, I do a lot of things, Jonathan, and this radio program is one of them. I actually do two radio programs on KZSU, this new segment, and I do a world music, a two-hour world music radio show. Through my work in music and radio, I have a career. And then I have my other professional career, which I call my, you know, eight to five type thing. So I, one of my struggles with LinkedIn was how do I put myself out on LinkedIn and, and make all of these things visible? Like I can't, LinkedIn does, a, it actually allows you now, but uh, before it didn't even allow you to put two job experiences at the same time, but mm -hmm. it confuses the end user. The person that doesn't know Carla will be very confused if they see all of these activities, right? The the job hopper kind of situation. They, yeah. if they're looking at it for what, six seconds, 12 seconds, whatever you want to say it is, people are not going to appreciate me. And I think I have so much to offer because I have so much initiative. So what I ended up doing in, in LinkedIn 
was creating a separate profile. So I have my my radio, my journalism, and, and my community building in one profile, and my regular job, which was a lot of recruiting. I had uh, two years at Facebook on one profile. I couldn't make it work. And at one point, I just wanted to give up on LinkedIn and say, you know, yeah. delete it. LinkedIn, you don't represent me. <laughs> I, and Carla, I was going to say, yeah, LinkedIn isn't, isn't going to be like everything, right? But there's actually, so we actually create something on Wonsulting called the Wonsulting Wendy. So if anybody who's listening to this searches Wonsulting Wendy, you can see exactly what you could put in your profile. Another thing as well, they added, like you said, you can add multiple positions, but you can also say if it's part-time, if it's full-time, if it's contract, if it's freelance, et cetera, you can actually add that as a variant to your profile too as well. But then I think the most important part about LinkedIn is your about section, because your about section exemplifies who you are and shares your story, shares your background, right? Like I do a radio station, like, like you, I don't do a radio station, but I'm just saying for you, for example, I do a radio station. I'm passionate about job empowerment, job search, et cetera. Right. So I think that it, it solves for a lot of different gaps, but the resume of course will also solve and be supplementary as well. That was Jonathan Javier. Catch the full interview later this week on KZSU and follow us at KZSU News for the latest updates. Hear from scientists about how the coronavirus could change over time and why kids are the key to reducing the severity of the disease, right now on the Epidemic Podcast. I think if I had to put money on it, I think it's more likely that this virus will be persisting in human populations for as long as I'm alive. I think there's gonna be a different kind of equilibrium that we reach in the future where humans and SARS-CoV-2 coexist in a much milder, more benign way. You're listening to Epidemic, the podcast about the science, public health, and social impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Celine Gounder. We're going to start today's show talking about a coronavirus. No, not SARS-CoV-2, another one. OC43. Oh yeah, OC43. This is a fun little science mystery. This is Jenny Levine. She's a postdoctoral epidemiologist and infectious disease researcher at Emory University. So OC43 is one of the, the four circulating endemic coronaviruses. As far as we know, everybody has gotten it probably multiple times. OC43 is very mild. Most people experience it like the common cold. Besides rare outbreaks in places like nursing homes, it's not a cause of concern. But it might not have always been that way. Adults alive today were exposed to all of those for the first time in childhood. And so it is possible that any of those, when they first entered the human population, could have caused a scenario, a pandemic, similar to what we're seeing right now with SARS-CoV-2. After the SARS outbreak in 2003, researchers started getting more interested in these less severe coronaviruses. They wanted to know when these milder coronaviruses first started infecting people. 
And the best guess was the late 1800s, which coincides with a time at which something that in newspapers and such was called the Russian flu. Russian flu caused fever and fatigue and killed an estimated one million people. And so there's a hypothesis that perhaps that Russian flu pandemic was actually an OC43 pandemic, and that was the emergence of OC43, which as time has passed now just causes the common cold. So that could be a possible future for SARS-CoV-2. Earlier this week, when this episode was released, April 19th marked another milestone in the pandemic. Vaccines became available to anyone over the age of 16 in the United States. Vaccinating as many people as possible is a key step to ending the pandemic. But an end to the pandemic might not mean the end of SARS-CoV-2. In fact, many scientists like me and Jenny think that even with vaccines, COVID is here to stay. I don't think that herd immunity is actually, in the long run, a possibility for SARS-CoV-2. But that doesn't suggest that we're going to live in this kind of pandemic state long into the future. I think there's going to be a different kind of equilibrium that we reach in the future where humans and SARS-CoV-2 coexist in a much milder, more benign way. In this episode, we're going to look at how SARS-CoV-2 could go from a pandemic to an endemic virus like OC43. We'll learn why we may never reach herd immunity with SARS-CoV-2. At least in the short term, because there are still many, many people worldwide who have never had SARS-CoV-2 and are still susceptible to it. The factors that will shape SARS-CoV-2 in the post-pandemic world. Reinfection, the seasonality of the virus, and the vaccine that's out there. And how new variants of the coronavirus could upend everything we know about COVID. If infections in young children become severe, then we need to rethink things. Today on Epidemic, SARS-CoV-2 as an endemic virus. Ever since the beginning of the pandemic, there's one phrase we've heard over and over again, herd immunity. That's when there are so many people in the population who are immune to a virus. Even if it does infect someone, it has nowhere left to go. So it's kind of like if you were trying to make a fire and most of the sticks were wet, you wouldn't be able to start the fire, even if you put a lot of sparks in there, because there's not enough dry wood. And when you put in a lot of people that have immunity, it's like adding a lot of wet wood and it's very hard to start the fire. But Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization at the University of Saskatchewan, thinks there's still a lot of fuel left for this pandemic. So I think that it's pretty unlikely that we're going to eliminate it, at least in the short term, because there are still many, many people worldwide who have never had SARS-CoV-2 and are still susceptible to it. Before we get too much further, there's a word Angela used that we should define. What does it mean to eliminate a virus? Elimination just means that you are eliminating that virus from circulation within a given population. And that's different from eradication, which basically means you wipe it off the face of the earth and stop it from circulating in any human population or animal population. Eradication is a very high bar. And we haven't successfully eradicated very many viruses at all. In fact, the only two viruses that we've managed to eradicate, at least in nature, um, are smallpox and rinderpest, which is an agricultural pathogen. 
Every virus has a different threshold for herd immunity. We still don't know for sure what it is for SARS-CoV-2, but it's likely very high, perhaps even over 80%. However, there's a bunch of sort of caveats to this. One of them is that when we think about generating immunity, so how do we get to that herd immunity threshold, the herd immunity threshold depends entirely on transmission-blocking immunity. All the vaccines available in the United States right now offer protection from severe disease. But more research is needed to know how well they'll prevent the spread of the virus. That's called sterilizing immunity. So it's like the strongest, strongest, strongest version of immunity. So if I had sterilizing immunity against SARS-CoV-2, it would mean that you could take a dropper full of liquid and viral particles and put it up my nose and my immune system would be so good at fighting that off that I wouldn't get infected, the virus wouldn't be able to replicate in me, I wouldn't get sick, and I wouldn't transmit it. One of the reasons why it's so hard to achieve sterilizing immunity is because of where viruses live. It's very difficult to induce completely sterilizing protection via a mucosal surface like the nose. That's one of the reasons why the influenza vaccine is also thought to not be completely protective every year. When you get a COVID vaccine shot, like an injection in your shoulder, it activates your immune system to release antibodies that try to fight off any SARS-CoV-2 virus it might find. Those antibodies are called IgG antibodies. But there's another kind of antibody that lives in your nose and mucus. They're called IgA antibodies. But that's why people have been talking about switching to an intranasal vaccination that might be able to produce some of those mucosal-specific immune responses for viruses that are acquired through that mucosal surface. Angela says that while sterilizing immunity would be great, it's not necessary for an effective vaccine. A vaccine that prevents severe disease, period, is going to be massively beneficial to public health. You know, we have a number of vaccines that are very effective and that have effectively eliminated viruses from populations like the inactivated polio vaccine, for example, that don't produce completely sterilizing immunity. Another hurdle to herd immunity is that we just don't have enough vaccines for everyone. I think the thing that that's really worrisome is the possibility that if vaccination and immunization uh, takes a long time for the global population, that circulating virus will continue to mutate. New variants could emerge that are capable of getting around the vaccine-induced immunity and will then be able to cause severe disease again in people. These are big challenges to herd immunity. Uneven access to vaccines, questions about how long immunity lasts, and a lot of people still susceptible to the virus. Jenny believes the best we can hope for is transient herd immunity. So if you can vaccinate really quickly in a population, you can get this kind of refractory period where there's not enough susceptibles for a little while, but susceptibles will start building up as they lose their immunity or they lose their transmission blocking immunity or the virus evolves away and we get new variants that can escape that to some degree. I think that that's why we really need to focus, once we get vaccines distributed in the U.S., we need to focus on global immunization, because the sooner we can get this under control globally, the sooner it's not going to be a problem for anybody. So if reaching herd immunity isn't likely, what does that mean for SARS-CoV-2? We'll find out after the break. 
This is the Epidemic Podcast on KZSU News. If SARS-CoV-2 can't be eliminated through herd immunity, it'll become endemic. An endemic pathogen is something that is just present in the community. I think in the strictest sense, it's something that's there all the time and constantly being transmitted. This is Jeffrey Shaman. He's a professor of environmental health sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. So an example of a virus that came over and spread in kind of epidemic fashion and then became endemic would be West Nile virus. That emerged in New York City in 1999. Within five years, it had spread across the entire continental United States and all of North America, for that matter. And it is now endemic. At this recording, we're still in the pandemic phase of COVID, and we still don't know what the next phase of SARS-CoV-2 will look like. Are there going to be areas of the world where they're just seeing it all the time? Are there going to be areas of the world where it's going to be this seasonal virus, where it's going to appear every year, some people are going to get infected with it? One of the most important questions scientists are trying to answer is how long will immunity last to SARS-CoV-2? Jeffrey and others are looking to common coronaviruses for clues about how SARS-CoV-2 might behave. 90% of people have antibodies against each of these four different endemic coronaviruses that we already deal with and that cause the common cold. 90%. That means that just about everyone has had one of these common coronaviruses at some time. One of those four common coronaviruses is OC43, possibly a descendant of the Russian flu. Before the COVID pandemic, Jeffrey and other researchers looked at how often people were getting infections with these other coronaviruses. So we were seeing people being reinfected within the span of a year. And we even had three individuals who seemed to have three infections with the same coronavirus within the span of a year. So our takeaway from this is that within the endemic coronaviruses and certainly the endemic beta coronaviruses, OC43 and HKU1, there is a lot of repeat infection. This suggests that natural immunity to common coronaviruses like OC43 may not last very long. Of course, this begs the question, is this something that's going to happen with SARS-CoV-2? And the answer, of course, is we don't know. But repeat infections may not necessarily be a bad thing. What we saw with other coronaviruses, and it's we're seeing similar data now from SARS-CoV-2, is that getting a second infection, getting a reinfection, is more mild than the first infection. This is one way that people develop natural immunity to common coronaviruses like OC43. People get infected many times during their life with these common cold viruses, and subsequent infections are, generally speaking, milder. And so in the future, what would happen is everyone would get infected for the first time as a young kid, it would be mild because they're a kid. And then they would get reinfected throughout life, and it would be mild because they had some pre-existing immunity. So that seems like one reasonably likely scenario, but it really, it depends on the infection fatality ratio staying low in young children. As devastating as COVID has been, one saving grace is that the disease has not posed a serious risk to most children. But as the virus continues to mutate, there's no guarantee that will always be the case. I feel like we need to be paying a lot of attention to this. The variant that's spreading in India right now, there seems to be an increase in severe cases in young children. And that that is of concern and I think something that we need to be collecting data on ASAP. 
Variants like the one Jenny mentioned in India could throw off this gradual easing of disease severity. We've already seen reinfections of coronavirus in places where new variants are circulating. But what's unclear is if reinfection with a new variant produces a milder infection, like it might with OC43, or if it could make someone sicker. Here's Jeffrey Shaman again. There are viruses that cause more severe infections upon reinfection. This has been documented certainly in dengue, and we can see it in uh, respiratory syncytial virus in some instances as well. Jeffrey says it's still very early to know for sure if this is the case with SARS-CoV-2. More data is needed. One small study, just two dozen participants, found nine people with worse symptoms when they were infected with a new variant after their first infection. So what we're seeing is a range of reactions here, and unfortunately a time isn't going to be the uh, necessary ingredient for telling us whether people really are at risk of more severe complications when they're repeatedly infected or if it gets less severe over time. Jenny agrees. As far as I know, we haven't really seen a lot of that individual level data. And what that means is it could be explained either by a more severe strain that is causing severe primary infections, which isn't great, but doesn't have really scary long-term implications, or a variant that can cause severe disease upon reinfection, which is a, a scarier scenario and one that I think we need to really be on top of measuring. Angela Rasmussen again. It's sort of like a a decades-long arms race between the immune system and the virus as it continued mutating. That, I think, is maybe a preview of what we could expect potentially with SARS coronavirus too. So if it's always circulating at a low level and constantly acquiring these changes, it could come back every fall and winter. Comparing SARS-CoV-2 to other coronaviruses has many wondering if COVID could become another cold season disease like the flu, but Angela doesn't like that comparison. Flu is a little different. Influenza crosses species all the time, and that allows it to acquire mutations very quickly. This is a big reason why influenza comes back every year. It can travel in migratory birds, which is at least partly why it's a seasonal disease. The other is the way the influenza virus's genetic material is structured. It can mutate way faster than coronaviruses. Basically, if two influenza viruses infect the same animal at the same time, those different segments can be reassorted together, essentially shuffled together like two decks of cards. That results in new influenza viruses that have some components of each of the virus that originally infected the host, and that can have really, really unpredictable effects on both pathogenicity and transmissibility. The virus infects birds and pigs too, and can swap chunks of its genetic material across subtypes. It's the difference between what we scientists call genetic drift and genetic shift. Coronaviruses can't do that. They can recombine uh, if there is a co-infection, and that does happen sometimes, but they don't have the ability to, to reassort like flu does. There are also fewer kinds of coronavirus out there compared to influenza. So I think that once we manage to, to control transmission on a global scale especially, we really won't see that much more of SARS coronavirus too. There's always the possibility, of course, that we might need to get boosters, but I think it's pretty unlikely once this is under control that we'll be needing to get annual boosters the way we do for influenza. But getting coronavirus under control is still a big lift. At this recording, the United States is still seeing more than 70,000 new cases of COVID every day. 
not to mention transmission in other countries right now, like India and Brazil. More coronavirus cases means more chances for new, more dangerous variants that could outsmart our vaccines. So if you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, please give it serious thought. And remember, vaccines work best in communities, not individuals. It's why we're still recommending everyone wear a mask until most of us are vaccinated. We all need to do our part to make sure SARS-CoV-2 comes under control. The OC43 coronavirus may have gone from pandemic to common cold, but that took over 100 years. That's time none of us have. Epidemic is brought to you by Just Human Productions. We're funded in part by listeners like you. We're powered and distributed by Simplecast. Today's episode was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our music is by the Blue Dot Sessions. Our production and research associate is Tematayo Fegbenle. Our interns are Annabelle Chen, Brian Chen, and Sophie Barma. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. Follow Epidemic on Twitter and Just Human Productions on Instagram to learn more about the characters and big ideas you hear on the podcast. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. Thanks for listening to Epidemic. Thanks for being with us today on the Monday Roundup. You can always find us on Twitter at KZSU News and anywhere you get your podcasts. Have a great rest of your week. I'm Kenter, KZSU News.